Video recordings of this podcast can be found on RaisingEquity.org and Truth to Power on YouTube. Welcome to Raising Equity. I'm Dr. Kira Banks, your host, and today we're going to talk about the criminal justice system. Uh, it's a big concept that touches the lives of really most Americans at some point in their life. Um, and specifically, prisons are a major focus because the United States jails more people than other countries. And disproportionately, we're, I think, 5% of the population in the world and um, 25% of the prison population. So we need to really be thinking about where can we reform or abolish our criminal justice system. And so one organization that's working locally in St. Louis on this topic is Close the Workhouse. So today I have with me Brittany Farrell, who's going to share with us about the work of Close the Workhouse, criminal justice reform in general, um, prison abolition, and the vision beyond prisons, or maybe we should even say, you know, before prison. How can we keep people out of the system rather than just reforming the system? So welcome. Thanks for joining me, Brittany. Thanks for having me. Maybe let's just start with telling us about Closed Workhouse. Okay. So Close the Workhouse is a campaign that's under um, Action St. Louis, and we're partnered with Art City Defenders and The Bail Project. And so we are a campaign that's grounded in abolition and uh, divesting from uh, incarceration and investing into community wellness. And so a lot of our work is in, built in, out of that framework. And our work right now is centered solely on getting the workhouse closed. Um, so the workhouse is the medium security jail prison that's down on Hall Street. Um, and it incarcerates a lot of people simply off of the fact that they don't have money to bail themselves out of jail. Yeah. And so you mentioned close the workhouse and it's the medium security facility. Why do they call it the workhouse? Why is it called the workhouse? So historically, the workhouse literally was a place where people went to work off their, it was a debtor's prison. People went to work off like their debt so that they can be free. Um, and this was throughout the 1800s where, you know, if you had committed any type of crime or if you were in debt in any type of way, you went and your labor is what earned you your freedom. And that is important for folks to know, I mm -hmm. think, because they assume that we've stopped debtors prisons. Oh, no, mm -mm, absolutely not. Right. And, and while folks aren't necessarily performing physical labor, it's more so... Um, an institution that's just holding people in extremely inhumane conditions. You know, the city, the city is making, I think it was like 16,000 a bed on folks who were being incarcerated. Really? I have to fact check that. Yeah. And, yeah. And I think it was 1966 when the, the current building was, was built mm -hmm. and just looking at the report, the close the workhouse report, I didn't realize how this inhumane treatment had been going on for so long. Like, I, I mean, it was, it came to my attention in the past five or six years. And so it, it's naive of me to be like, oh, this has hap been happening since it started. But things like people not having adequate heating or cooling, mm -hmm. you know, things like people dying. Oh, yeah. In the last five years, we've had deaths in the workhouse. Mm -hmm. um, I know that there was a scandal at one point where the corrections officers were like, having people fight, forcing oh, yeah. people to fight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, um, there is uh, a man who recently started being involved with the campaign 
and he was incarcerated in the workhouse. And he would talk about how they would use this model of scarcity to to get people in the workhouse to fight each other. Like during the summer months when it's super, super hot. And we all know we've heard the reports about how the workhouse does not have air conditioning. Um, and so people were literally just in there suffering in this heat. The correctional officers would push in a cooler of ice. And basically it's like first come, first serve, you know, and what happens in a situation like that, it's kind of like a micro, you know, chasm of like what the overall world is like, right? You provide just a little bit of resources to a huge population and watch them fight over it, you know? It's like Hunger Games. Exactly. And so um, the correctional officers, they definitely have been responsible for a lot of the violence that is happening inside between the the detainees. Ooh, yeah. Um, yeah, gosh, that's just awful. Yeah, it's really terrible. Yeah, I, I, oh, yeah, I, could, I was thinking about how awful that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, what's even more unfortunate is you know, the history of the workhouse has been their impact uh, affecting majority Black people. Today, it's the same thing. You know, it's like 90% of the population in the workhouse are Black people in a city that's 49% Black. And, you know, that has not changed over the course of history, you know, and it's continuing to um tear apart families and deteriorate communities. People can't get jobs when they come out, you know? So it's creating a cycle where folks are going to be more likely to commit crime to survive and then go right back into the system. And so um, the work that we're doing with Close to Workhouse is wanting to put an end to that cycle and to reimagine what it would look like if we began to take that $16 million that the city is investing into this institution and putting it towards community wellness. You know, what would our communities, our Black communities look like if we began to actually invest into the community in the same way that we invest into these systems that are literally caging people and tearing people apart from their families because they don't have the money to pay to get out? I think it's important to just pause there and make clear the reason why raising equity exists is to try to help people see how these systems that operate in our society impact individuals mm-hmm. and how we can dismantle them. Mm-hmm. And I just want to want to pause for listeners and folks who are watching. Like what you're saying is a perfect example of how our criminal justice system in a way is perpetuating the inequities in terms of race in terms of class, Mm -hmm. because I was reading the report and it was saying that most cities allow people to be released and to just come back and appear, right? Mm -hmm. Because most of the folks in the workhouse are not violent criminals, right? right? That's people say, oh, what about the rapists and the murderers? The majority of folks are not there for those sorts of heinous crimes. Mm -hmm. And so we have the system that is jailing people, disproportionately black and brown folks, disproportionately people who are poor and who can't meet their bail because our city isn't allowing people to be released and appear. And I was reading that it was over 10% of the folks that end up um, having charges dropped served 291 days Mm. in that facility. Yeah. That's inhumane. Yeah, it's terrible. It's terrible. And so when people talk about these systems that are operating, like I want folks to realize that, like you said, it's not only impacting individuals who are in 
But it's, it is. It's tearing apart families. It's keeping people from being able to have full lives because mm-hmm. you're, you are caging them mm-hmm. in inhumane conditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, and even when we look at this from like a health standpoint, right, it's like, how is the city investing into the overall health of our community? They're We're not. not. <laughs> They're We're not, not. <laughs> right? And if you, um, we have the people's budget coming up. On uh, Thursday, the 18th. And even when you look at how the city budgets its money, right? And when you think about a budget, even like your own personal budget, you prioritize things that are important, things that need to get done. You know, the city is prioritizing more police and what they call public safety. And only a very, very small and insignificant part of that budget is invested into services that actually help the community. And so, um, you know, we had a, an event a couple of weeks ago around uh, public health in the age of incarceration, because it's really important that we begin to understand the health implications of incarceration and how it's not just the person who's being incarcerated that's being impacted by this, but again, it's their families, meaning their children and and their grandchildren and their, you know, partners and, you know, the people around them. This type of trauma is, it, it can be generational, right? And when we think about ending um, cycles that people tend to perpetuate, you know, it makes it really, really hard. And people kind of get locked into this this way of, you know, having to survive. There's no intervention from the system. There's no intervention from the city because they continue to prioritize things that protect property, things that protect people that have resources and continue to fail the people who don't. Yeah. I mean, it's property over people. Yeah. But if we think about it, you mentioned our own personal budget, mm-hmm. right? If we ended up spending tons of money on, oh, I don't know, like wounds that were infected mm-hmm. or, uh, you know, uh, sickness that hit that was dire that we had to get medication for or take off work for, I think pretty quickly we'd be looking for more preventative care. Mm-hmm. We'd be thinking, what do we need to do to not end up in this situation? Yeah. Like, what do I need to do? Do I need to exercise no- more? Do I need to change what I'm putting in my body in terms of food? Mm-hmm. What do I need to do to be well rather than just how do I manage when I'm sick? Mm-hmm. And so it to me, when I think about our criminal justice system, I feel like we're, we're failing because we're only thinking about when things get to be dire, mm-hmm. what are we going to do with people? rather than investing in their wholeness before yeah. it gets to that point. And you mentioned the ripple effect that it has on families. I do work in schools and I talk to teachers who have kids whose parents are incarcerated. They they have a hard time learning mm-hmm. because they're stressed and worried and, and sad and grieving. Mm-hmm. And so we think about how we want our schools to be high-performing schools and our kids to do well. We're not setting them up for that when mm-hmm. we are holding their family, their parent for some misdemeanor mm-hmm. rather than letting them come back to appear. Right. And then you, I also think about, you know, when that happens and children are growing up in uh, like a single parent home, you know, um, or even if both parents weren't in the house when a parent was incarcerated, that that lack of presence or support, whatever was there, right? Um, it it leaves 
like a void there, which oftentimes, you know, what happens with kids that don't have supervision or who don't have, you know, the resources and support that they need, they then are going to funnel down that same that same pipeline. Well, they're at risk for engaging risk, in yeah. in unproductive behaviors mm-hmm. and more and more either seeking something to fill that void yeah. or being willing to take the risk because they have a shortened sense of their future. Mm-hmm. Or they're being bumped around and bounced around to family yeah. or not family, foster care. Yeah. And that creates all sorts of other risks. Yeah. And I think our criminal justice system, mass incarceration is very connected to the school to prison pipeline. And so if there is no, um, there's no investment on this, you know, with the city or the state investing to ensure that uh, mass incarceration is not our go-to, you know, and we don't wait until um, these dire situations to figure out, like, what do we do with people who've committed crimes? There's absolutely no investment on the school side, you know, to ensure that children who come from families and communities that have lack of support and resources aren't, you know, getting funneled into this system that will lead them later on down the line into right. be incarcerated. And it ends up costing us it because costs, equity yeah. means realizing that those kids who are in a school where predominantly their parents might be more at risk of being jailed, mm-hmm. uh, that they need more supports, which means more money in the public school system that has to go to the wraparound supports for those kids rather than maybe instructional or other supports. It, it impedes their learning mm-hmm. and requires a higher level of investment in that school. And that's not happening, it's which means not they're not happening. getting the learning they need. They're not getting the support that they need. And so I want people to mm-hmm. just think about how these systems mm-hmm. are so connected. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I think about in terms of like trying to understand uh, you know, what we can do, because I want to ask you, you know, do we reform or do we abolish? You mm-hmm. mentioned you all are rooted in abolition. Mm-hmm. I think one of the key things is is making sure that we keep the like humanity of people who are incarcerated front of mind because Mm -hmm. our society encourages us to dehumanize them is to see them as problems that can be thrown away and we don't rehabilitate right and so to me i'm willing to think about abolition because i want to i want to i want to do something that allows people to be their full selves Mm -hmm. rather than something that like keeps them marginalized forever once they have contact with the system. So what does Close the Workhouse say in terms of, you mentioned being rooted in abolition, reform versus abolition? Yeah, we don't believe in prisons and jails. They need to be abolished. And the millions of dollars that are being spent to cage people, we need to reinvest that into things that will enhance community well-being. So, um, access to education and jobs and housing and public spaces where people can access and utilize um, mental health services and health services in general and making sure that we are prioritizing people and people's wellness rather than um, punishing folks for being poor. Yeah. And yeah. That, I mean, that's really what it that's is. Really, that's really what it is. Like being grounded in abolition meaning means, you know, prisons aren't solving our problems. Jails are not, 
jails are not ensuring that people aren't committing crimes. It's actually making it worse. You know, why are we continuing to invest in an arrest and incarcerate model when it's been proven to not work? Abolish all prisons and jails and invest into the people. Right. It's simple. Simple yet. We get so stuck in how we've been doing things. Yes, of course we do. Our system is so set up to punish. Mm-hmm. And, you know, well, where, where's the retribution and where's the justice mm-hmm. that it's hard for us to even think about this idea of not having jails mm-hmm. and prisons? Yeah, it is. And um, it, it's going to it's a it's a culture shift. Like we exist in a country where we have been conditioned to believe that, you know, the response to someone uh, committing a crime as a, as a result of not having resources necessary to live a full life <laughs> in dignity and power, how do we persecute them, persecute them to the fullest extent, right? And uh, ensure that they learn their lesson to never do that again. Meanwhile, there is no supports in place to where if they're not committing a crime to make ends meet, what are like what are, what do they do? They just suffer. They don't eat. They sit in a home with no electricity. Like what like how are we caring for those people? Mm-hmm. And so um we have to change the culture around how we not view um punishment, but before we get there. Right. Well, before we get to having to figure out how do we punish people for committing crimes before we get to the people having to figure out, like, how are they going to make ends meet? Like, how do we get ahead? All of those things to ensure that we are not continuing to perpetuate this culture where people are disposable and it's usually the most vulnerable of our population. I really do think our our myth of meritocracy, the like rugged individual that mentality in the United States plays into why it's hard to hard to think differently, right? Because I I talk to people who say, well, that individual they need to go get a job so that they can afford electricity, or they just need to go do this, like the, this very individual mindset, and that you you deserve what you have, mm-hmm. that you deserve to be poor, mm-hmm. and we I think need to do a lot of work in our in our country to understand that poverty. It's not something people choose. Right. That there are these myths that like people want to be poor and want to just live off welfare. And mm-hmm. but that's the thing, you can't live a life that's full and resourced off welfare. So it's not like people that's like some people are getting away with that. Mm-hmm. And that pe- people don't want to be poor. People will never choose to be poor. I, I don't I don't believe people would choose to be poor or choose to have to resort to crime. And honestly, if we take away nepotism, how many people that do have access and resources would be out here not committing white collar crimes, but trying to make ends meet, mm. you know? Like if they didn't have the the safety net of, yeah. of the connections that they have. Yeah. And, and not even just the safety net and the connections, but if they weren't beneficiaries of years of violence against marginalized people and people who to this day don't have access to resources, you know, like the, it's very easy to say someone needs to get a job when you have never had to struggle with 
you know, lack of resources, or even if you did have to struggle with lack of resources, if you've had support in place to kind of like help you along the way. Yeah, I think I come from a very privileged background Mm -hmm. and and not having had to experience those things. And what really helped me to understand how broken our system was, was to hear the stories of people who had been incarcerated, like to really listen Mm -hmm. and to um, read so that it made, again, like I think we're socialized to see people as disposable and and put to put them away in prison. But when you start to learn people's stories, you really are left with, I, I might do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like, how could they just sit there and let their child be hungry? Mm-hmm. Or, right, like you you begin to humanize folks and you understand the story behind what happened. And then you think, why aren't we doing the work in terms of our mental health services, our social service agencies to not let people get to that point? That mm-hmm. means we don't care. We We divest so much in groups of folks around race and class and place that it's almost like, what do we expect? What do we expect? Mm-hmm. And it, it, just to be clear, like some of the largest mental health facilities in our country are prisons, mm-hmm. Cook County Jail, LA County Jail. Mm-hmm. So that means we're failing people. Absolutely. Yeah. Ugh. Prisons where people are not coming out well or resourced or, or even people who aren't well getting funneled to prison mm-hmm, because absolutely. we've deinstitutionalized. Now you got me going to my clinical psych, <laughs> <laughs> my clinical psychology parts coming that's out. That's right though. That's right. Yeah. And I, I teach in my abnormal psychology classes, yeah. like they learn about the deinstitutionalization movement in like the eighties. Mm-hmm. So Reagan and others, you know, who said, well, why are we spending all these federal dollars on these mental health institutions? And I, if people are, are know the history of their towns and their cities, most cities have like an old building that was a mental health institution that there's stories about, you know, that people know old lores about them that were shut down. So I want to just say there was a time where federally and nationally, so federally and mm-hmm. state and locally that we were investing, we realized that we needed to give people the mental health support for our society to be well. Mm-hmm. We deinstitutionalized, expecting that social service agencies would take over, but we never funded those social service agencies. So since the 80s, we've been decreasing the number of services that are available and not filling that void. And so I uh, just want to be clear with folks that we've done it before, invested in mental health, mm-hmm. and we need to do it again. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I yeah. agree. If folks want to learn more about Close the Workhouse, how can they, how can they learn more? So we have the full report on closetheworkhouse.org. You can check that out. We have um, our social media platforms. So our Twitter, Close the Workhouse, our Facebook, Close the Workhouse, and our Instagram, Close the Workhouse. And we post about all of our events there too. So we have meetings every month. Um, I highly encourage you to come out to a meeting to see where you can plug in. And it really doesn't matter where you are on this spectrum of abolition. Like if you are just learning about it, getting your feet wet, still kind of uncomfortable, or if you're like all in and you believe that all prisons and jails need to be abolished, like we have space for people in this campaign who lie anywhere on that spectrum. Mm -hmm. And so follow us, like us, um, and just stay in touch and in tune with what we have going on. Come out. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that because sometimes feel people feel like if I walk into the space, I have to be all for no. abolition to be welcome or I'll be shamed. Um, but there there are folks who are 
who are more focused on like ending cash bail, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And who are, that's where their work and their energy is. And so they're, like you said, they're folks who are different places on the spectrum, but mm-hmm. folks who are wanting to see this workhouse closed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If folks who are not in St. Louis want to be connected, what other organizations would you say that they need to know about? Uh, Action St. Louis, Arch City Defenders, and the Bail Project. And look, that, by plugging into those organizations, they can kind of get connected to us through them as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Nationally, the Bail Project does national work. And um, there are other places too, like in LA and um, Detroit and Philadelphia, where if you're looking for models of uh, prison reform or, you know, conversations around abolishing jails, uh, closing Rikers, you know, like there are other places where you can um, do your research and learn more. Yeah. Well, thank you for joining us. Yeah. I really appreciate you coming. Thanks for joining us today. Hopefully you've learned something about not only close the workhouse, but maybe how you can get involved in your area and in these issues nationally. I know for me, Reading, understanding, listening to the voices of folks who'd been incarcerated was essential in me understanding how our different systems around class and race and and criminal justice were intersecting to kind of perpetuate the inequity that we see. So do your work and come back next time on Raising Equity. 